humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 249, and I had a conversation with the legendary Alan Zweibel. Why is he legendary? The body of work this man has created, award-winning body of work, is mind-blowing. Really, it's enough for four people. He was an original writer for Saturday Night Live, and created such iconic characters as the samurai for John Belushi. If you haven't seen the samurai sketches, they're fantastic. Uh, his close friend, Gilda Radner, may her memory be a blessing. I loved her so much. He and Gilda came up with Rosanna, Rosanna Dana, uh, for one, and, and a host of other characters. But I would, I would say that that's probably her most memorable character. Alan's won five Emmy Awards, the Tony Award, uh, Writers Guild of America, Television Critic Association Awards. Uh, like I said, he does everything, so he's authored over a dozen books, and he's won the Thurber Prize for his book, The Other Shulman. Uh, he has children's books. <laughs> he just put out a book called Laugh Lines, My Life-Making Funny People Funnier, which is his memoir over the past four decades of, of writing comedy. And he's close friends, you know, he was close friends with Gilda, and uh, he's close friends with Billy Crystal and Lorne Michaels and Larry David, and of course, uh, the departed and most wonderful Gary Shandling. In feature films, uh, his credits include Dragnet, North, Gilda Live, and The Story of Us, which I personally loved the story of us. And it's so weird to me that I get to sit down and talk with him in this interview because when I saw Story of Us, you know, I didn't, that was at a time when I didn't think about who wrote things. Um, it's just so bizarre to end up one day. I mean, I really love that movie. And in fact, uh, I did a monologue from that movie for an audition once. It's just a weird, weird connection. Um, also, what's weird is, like I mentioned, Gilda Radner, whom I adored, uh, she wrote a book when she was uh, dying of cancer, and uh, it's called It's Always Something. If you haven't read that book, I highly recommend it. And Alan wrote the foreword in that book. It's weird when things connect like that in my brain. I don't, I love it. Uh, Bunny Bunny is a book that Alan wrote about his relationship with Gilda and their <laughs> their quips back and forth. It was really a, a fun read. And it also became a uh, play. So an off-Broadway play called Bunny Bunny, Gilda Radner, a sort of love story. I loved this conversation because I like funny, smart people, and <laughs> Helen is definitely that. We dig into um, his relationship with Gary Shandling. We talk a bit about Larry David. We talk about creativity. We talk about being funny. We talk about cancel culture, all sorts of stuff. Um, he's got a movie coming out uh, that he wrote with Billy Crystal called Here Today. It's based on his short story, The Prize. And uh, Billy Crystal and Tiffany Haddish star in it. It's coming soon to hopefully a theater near you, but perhaps it'll be coming to a drive-in. You know, we'll see what happens with all that stuff. But definitely it's, uh, it's going to be good, I, I'm sure, because he's a funny man. 
Uh, oh, he also, I should bring up too, uh, so I brought up 700 Sundays. He's also a, the writer of Martin Short's Broadway hit Fame Becomes Me with Martin Short, obviously. And uh, in all, I think uh, six off-Broadway plays. It's, I mean, when does he sleep? Who knows? I'm, I have a feeling he drinks a lot of coffee. So that is Alan wrapped up in a uh, nutshell-ish. Can't wait for you to hear the episode. Um, usual stuff, social media, Hey Human Podcast can be found on Instagram and Facebook. You can find my personal social media under Susan Ruthism, and that would be Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. If you go to HeyHumanPodcast.com, you'll find a links page with information and all that good news about my guests, and this one is no different. Uh, how to find Alan, his books, uh, links to trailers for his movies and television shows, and that kind of thing. <clears throat> also on HeyHumanPodcast.com, you will find the store. You can get Hey Human merchandise, which is cool, I think. Uh, definitely check that out. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to know more about me, go to SusanRuth.com. You can sign up for the mailing list there and check out some of the other things I do. Uh, if you like music, go to iTunes, search for me, Susan Ruth, and check out some of the music I have created into the world. I rewatched The Night Manager this week. So excellent. That's on, uh, is it on Amazon. No, I can't remember if it's on Amazon or Netflix. I think it's Amazon. It's really good. It stars Tom Hiddleston and Hugh Laurie, which then sent me down a Hugh Laurie kick, and I've been re-watching the first season of House, which is delightful. I like nerding out on that stuff. I love Hugh Laurie. I think he's so funny and, and a brilliant drama guy, too. Gotta love range. All right, no more of this parts. Let's get into that parts. Alan's Bell. Thank you for listening, everybody. Take care of yourself. Be kind. And uh, here we go. Hi. Well, this must be a very big day for you. How are you? It's huge. <laughs> you must be so beside yourself with glee. <laughs> I mean, it was all I could do, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. How are you? I'm great. I'm, I'm, I'm like everybody else. You know, you do what you do and um, you adjust. Um, you know, I've got so much work to do that it's um, easy to lose myself in the characters and in the writing. And uh, the next thing I know, it's five o'clock. You know, hey, what's what are we going to have for dinner? You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, working yeah. out and um, doing, you know, <laughs> just trying to fill the time how about you i mean it's the same i started working i made my breakfast and i started working and then three hours later my roommate said hey you're you got food in the toaster yeah <laughs> said, oh yeah <laughs> well yeah I, I i'll do that i i have this i don't know if this this started about a year ago and i <laughs> my wife will tell me you left the refrigerator door open, okay? And I go, oh, I did not. And then I'll look, and it's open. And I go, no, 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 you opened it. Now when I'm alone, let's say, I'll walk back into the kitchen, 
an hour <laughs> after I was last there, and there's an open refrigerator door. So I guess I'm getting to that age where... <laughs> Like, you, need the, you need the collar, the sensor collar, like cats and dogs are when they get fed. Something like that. And they that. walk away and start beeping at you. <laughs> yeah, 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 I think that that's the answer of because it's getting, um, and we've got three kids, five grandchildren, and um, are they um, all there? <laughs> they're not here at the house, but uh, one, uh, our son lives about 40 minutes in one direction in Livingston, New Jersey with his wife and three kids. Our middle child, our daughter, Lindsay, lives about 20 minutes from here in the other direction with her husband and two kids. And our youngest, Sari, just got engaged. They, they came to town and they just got their negative COVID uh, results. So my wife just, my wife had um, oral surgery two days ago and her, her <laughs> poor girl, her mouth, her face is like this big, but they just went to go look for venues for the wedding. So, um, oh. yeah, it's been really fun. Now, where are you? I'm in Los Angeles. Where? Los Feliz area. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm very close to Griffith Park. Oh, it's nice there. Yeah. yeah. I, when we started the Shandling show the first year, ABC Prospect, is that down yeah, there? Yeah, it's, it's right around the corner from me. I walk past it on my walk every day. So there you have it, you know. Yeah, they, they do a lot of filming there. It's been hopping. Even now? I mean... Even now, throughout the whole thing. They, they film, ironically, a lot of hospital and doctor shows there. Oh, well, that so. works out beautifully. You know, that, that's... Because <laughs> no, my friend Larry David had a shutdown for a month with Curb. So... Um, you know, and much of his stuff is done outdoors, you know, so I'm curious. That's yeah, what. trust me, I'm waiting on bated breath for the next season of Curb for the next episodes to come out because I've watched them all. <laughs> I, I Well, I've known Larry since 1974. I met he and Billy Crystal, who were two of them today, to this very day of my, my buddies. And trust me, in 1974... Larry David was no different then than he is now. He's the same guy. You know, he had hair that was sort of like Brillo-ish, you know? Yeah. yeah. But uh, he's, he's, you know, he's a good guy. He's a really good guy. All right. Uh, every time that dings, an angel gets its wings, is that your phone or your computer? That's yeah, now let me ask you a question. That must mean that an email came in. Every time I get an email come in, it dings. Yeah. Now I can lower the volume, but then I won't be able to hear you. Right. We don't want to do that for sure. Because right. I, I say really important things, Alan. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. I'm writing them all down so I, I won't forget. Yeah. So, um, all right. I'm going to I'm gonna click the little red dot that's at the top left, which I think takes me offline. And let's see if Zoom still works. All right. Let's see what happens. <gasps> Here we are. Oh, my God. Wait a second. Oh, oh this is like, a, this is like... This is a gift from heaven. I you just know, we may have just been sucked into an alternate universe. So just prepare yourself when you go out after this. Things may look completely different. Well, you know something? I, I, I welcome the change at this point. <laughs> Whatever it is, I'm, I'm there for it. Well, so Alan, how do you know us? 
how do I know Russ? I met Russ on a street corner, like all good girls should. Uh, he he was introduced to me through a mutual friend, and he had just finished writing the book about his dad. And when we were introduced, he pulled a postcard out of his pocket and said, oh, you should read my book. And I said, delightful. You should be on my show. He said, delightful. And we've been fast. Oh, that's, a, oh that's adorable. Yeah. 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 I love Russ. I love him. He's the dearest. You know, um, we met on an ill-fated show many, many years ago with Ryan O'Neill and Farrah Fawcett. And um, he had just come from... I guess Murphy Brown. And I felt so badly for him because that in those years, Murphy Brown was at the top of the ratings list. And the show we were doing was like marching along the so he he plummeted, but um he's immensely talented. And by the way, I that show was in 19, I want to say 92. So that's almost 30-ish years now. I, I don't know what Russ looks like. I, if, if you put him in a lineup, okay, I may be able to pick him out. I think I remember what he looked like back then in the writer's room and all of that. But I, um, I can't remember how we reconnected, but he sent me his book. Yes. I think I gave him a blurb. And um, uh, and we've been sort of in touch. I've got I've read all but one of his books. So this is what he used to look like. Hold on, when, when you knew him, probably. Yeah, yeah. And and now he looks like that only with a graying beard and longer hair, basically. Oh, okay. Yeah, I would say he looks close, just like you do. Well, you know what it is? If if it's not broken, why fix it? You know, there it seems to be working, you know. So that's only a man would say that. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. I understand totally. In the in the entertainment industry, I think women are like, it's not broke, but let's fix it. You see, that that's really funny. That's that's really funny. So you do this podcast what weekly? Yes, it comes out every week, and uh, it's one of several things I do. I don't know if you looked at my bio when I sent you all that info, but uh, so I do this. I'm a writer, uh, performer. I finished the conservatory at Second City, abstract painter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did read this. Yeah. Stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and a performing songwriter. So I've written songs for like Reba and Lone Star and a bunch of different folks. Some oh, of that, that's great. Yeah. So you're having fun with your life? I think so. This year has been challenging as it has been for everyone. And yeah. especially because I moved here about a year and a half ago. And so I'd only just really started the momentum of being in Los Angeles when Yeah, everything. this happened and everything came to a screeching halt. Where did you move from? Uh, I lived in Nashville for 13 years. And before that, I grew up in Seattle for the most part. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. But so here we are. Thank you. I should introduce you to the people listening. Alan Zweibel, welcome to Hey Human. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> welcome. I, so but what I'll do, what I usually do, what I do is uh, I do a preamble before the episode. You know, I go and I add in where I talk about all the fabulous things you've done, like the yeah. lifetime of Emmys and the Thurber and all your fancy titles and important things so that I can use the bulk of this time to. So for us. Yeah. 
It's about you and me right now. No, you know? nobody else exists. That's right. No one out there. That's that's the new world. It's just you and me. It's just you and me. We're and on our own. <laughs> let them fend for themselves. That's what we, I said. We have a lot of books and it looks like a good amount of artwork. Is that somebody punching a punching bag behind your oh, head? Yeah, this is a cartoon someone made when I was doing its Gary Shanling show because it had been about two or three in the morning. And at one point, I made a, a remark that I was fighting sleep. And somebody did this cartoon of me punching a mattress. And the uh, caption says, Alan Zweibel fighting sleep. And this is a, uh, a picture of me and my old buddy, Gilda. I know. I love that. That's wonderful. Okay, so that, that, that hangs there. Growing up, she was uh, one of my heroes. And really, it's yeah, still is. Yeah, I mean, she was a big influence. You know, there's a up there is a poster up there. Oh yeah. Of a play that I wrote called Bunny Bunny. Bunny Bunny, about, yeah. It's yeah. about me and Gilda. I and, have that book. And oh. I'm gonna move you. Oh. Where is it? Somewhere in here is Bunny Bunny. Uh, oh there it is. See? Oh God bless you. That's so sweet. Thank you. Bunny and Bunny. This, and this is the sheep music. To it's Gary Shaling show the song that Which Gary you, and I wrote. you you wrote in an elevator. You wrote in an elevator, Mr. Shaling and I. On the on the way to to wherever you were going, you just wrote the song. It was just magical. Like for me, as I say in the book, I, the um, uh, it was like lightning struck a second time. First with Gilder at SNL, and when I met Shanling, it was like all right, I'm going to go through this again. And it felt really good. It was like I all of a sudden um, I, I had a brother, you know, and um, it was one of those magical uh, relationships where, you know, we thought enough alike to want to write with each other. But I always feel that there's always about 10, 15% difference. And it's uh, the alchemy of the two produces something that neither one of you could have done alone. You, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, yeah, Gary and I, and we did our show for four years. Yeah, great show. And he is certainly missed in the world. Yeah, I mean, if you look, I mean, Judd uh, Apatow did that uh, two-part um, documentary for, uh, I guess it was HBO, and it was also a, a memorial out in LA that I flew out with my wife to uh, speak at. And everyone was telling at the memorial, Gary jokes, jokes that Gary said, you know, and um, it was amazing because I spoke, Sarah Silverman, Bill Maher, uh, Kevin Nealon, and everybody who got up and spoke had the same jokes. <laughs> so I'd sat there and go, I can't do that one. I can't do that one. <laughs> you know, because I went like fourth or fifth. So anybody who went before me, oh, shit, I wanted to say that joke. But it was, um, yeah. He, he, and, and the thing about Gary was, uh, in addition to his um, his talent, which was, which was huge, um, was uh, he was a mentor. There are a lot of young writers that um, will tell you that they learned how to write from Gary. And um, when we did its Gary Shandling show, uh, 
Yeah, I didn't really know the L.A. writers. I was from New York, you know, and so the 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 only writers that I really brought to its Gary Shandling show were Tom Gamble and Max Pross, because I had known them from SNL and then Letterman. And so I brought them out there. OK, and now I mean, they're, they've been huge for 30 years. They, they produced The Simpsons. Um, but Gary knew the L.A. writing crowd. And um, so he would I would defer to him. You know, he hired a young guy named Ed Solomon, who's not only still a good friend, but he wrote Men in Black and Bill and Ted's uh, Excellent Adventure and uh, Jeff Franklin, who uh, created uh, Full House and um, uh, some other shows. And whoever he brought in, uh, Gary was able to determine, he had this instinct as to a person's sensibility and how it would mesh with somebody else's at the writing table, at the right in the writer's room. You, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But he would have these basketball games at his house on Sunday. And let's say it was called, he had a basketball court and uh, let's say the, the game was at one o'clock, let's say I'd get there a quarter to one and, and there'd be a covey of young writers listening to Gary talking about writing. And then after the game was over, I'd leave and they reconvened. And uh, and I know myself to this very day when I'm writing something, there is a, uh, a part of it. I got Gilda on one shoulder. I, I got Gary on the other in, in terms of more so Gary, because Gary was more of a pure writer. OK, Gilda was an improv genius and in, 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 in all that. Gary was a pure writer. He was a disc writer where he'd sit down and, and, and write. And I know that his influence um, lingers still. And I know that if you speak to Judd Apatow, if you speak to a bunch of others, they will tell you the same thing. Yeah, know? I was very moved by that documentary. I saw you know, some of the darkness that I carry, that many creatives carry. I saw that in Gary, you know, and in his journal writing. And... Obviously, he was next level because he had the childhood tragedy and such. But it is interesting to me how many people speak of feeling that brotherly bond to him, that thing that he sought, you know. You know what it is, Susan? Now, am you Susan or Sue? Susan. So if I said Sue. Well, I'd, was, shut, I'd shut the computer. Would, you know, oh. you'd throw me out of here. The, <laughs> the thing with Gary was he had such a with all of his demons and trust me trust me he cornered the market okay on demons he had so much tragedy in his life and so many so many he lost a brother in an early age his dad had died he was in a near fatal car accident himself he was very spiritual so along with whatever you know <laughs> He, he was so fucked up when it came to living inside of his own body. He was um, uncomfortable. And I remember there was a, uh, a 40th birthday party that he had. And his uh, shrink was there. Her name was uh, Lou. I, I, I don't know what that, what that was short for, but his shrink's name was Lou. And I went up to her and I just went, Good job. <laughs> but he, um, w with everything, with everything, which is, w which was the, um, 
I guess, you know, where his humor lied, you know, in, in reconciling th those things and uh, sort of an outsider tried and fit in and his, his view of the world. There was a spiritual core there. And when I first met him, uh, he was the first person I ever knew who was into crystals. This was before it became a thing. He had a, a cabin up in Big Bear where he used to go and just meditate for a weekend and come back refreshed. Um, he's given me, um, he gave me books uh, that are on my sh somewhere on the shelves over there that a few of them had God in the title. He, um, and when it came to writing, it may have been in Judd's documentary, but he used to say it all the time, was he would use expressions that people didn't use then. Okay, now it's part of like the jargon, you know, but he would say when you're writing a script, you write from the core. Who are your characters? What's the story? Get it down. The jokes will come later. But, but what's the inner life of the character? Where, where do they really live? What is this about? And it was an approach to writing. I know for me, coming from SNL, which was sketch and joke, um, I really didn't have to plumb those depths until I met Gary. And as a result of um, his influence, everything that I've written since then has had uh, a certain amount of heart. It was, you know, it, it was, this was the story, but it was also about something else. And I, I, th I think at this point, I do it subconsciously, but it was something that was verbalized by Gary. And I think, you know, when I wrote my book, Laugh Lines, I interviewed a lot of the writers from its Gary Shanling show and, and mutual friends that he had written with, because I wanted to make sure I got the story straight and, and, and all of that. Everybody said the same exact thing about him it, when it came to writing about what his influence was and, um, uh, that was a gift that he gave. Yeah, I often wonder people who do feel uncomfortable in the meat suit, as it were, and who have visited, been visited upon by tragedy after tragedy, that they see deeper into other people because they're seeking themselves. They're, they're trying to figure out who they are by who everyone else is, and it allows them a deeper uh, plumbing mechanism. I think. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I never, I never looked at it that way, but I think you're right. I, I think that um, what Gary used to do, and it used to spook some people out. He would look at you as if he was looking through you, and there are people like that. The, the, Eye contact is one thing, but taking an X-ray is another. And um, uh, and now that you put it that way, I think that there was a, a great degree of um, self-wandering, self-discovery, uh, self-examination. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Well, let's get uh, into you, shall we? And examine you deeply, so to speak. Sure. <laughs>
I mean, let's put, this, let me put this glove on. We'll be good. Uh, you began writing jokes for Catskill Comics, and uh, and you can learn that about you through a billion different interviews and reading Laugh Lines, which I loved, by the way. Thank I read you. Laugh Lines, Lunatics, Bunny Bunny, and you wrote a movie that I loved. And we talked about this in our email is a uh, story of us, which. That, that movie, whoo, boy, how do you talk about getting to the, the heartstrings? Well, you know, I, I started writing that movie alone. Um, one, one day I was driving with uh, Rob Reiner, and I, I guess I just had a fight with my wife or something, and I just said, you know, if Robin and I ever separate, I think we should do it over a summer when the kids go away to camp. So they won't know. And hopefully Robert and I can get it together during those eight weeks. And then Rob said, yeah, but what about visiting day? Well, we would put on a little act. <laughs> make believe everything was hunky-dory when we fly out for visiting day halfway through the summer. And we said, okay, let's, he said, let's do that. And I worked for two years on this script. And I didn't want there to be a seminal moment where two people, somebody was having an affair and that's why they broke up or, 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 or I wanted to make it the wear and tear of the job, you know, and the subtitle was, you know, was uh, the story of us, can a marriage survive 15 years of marriage, okay? So it was the slow erosion of the day-to-day -day stuff. And after working on the script by myself, and I didn't want to have a black hat and a white hat. I didn't want one person to be, uh, you know, right, and the other one be wrong. I, after close to two years, every draft I wrote, the guy was was an angel, <laughs> and the wife was such a bitch. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> and, okay. and I said, no, this is wrong. This is wrong. So I went to a birthday party. Robin and I went to a birthday party. Larry David's 50th birthday party it was at a restaurant. And across from us was seated uh, Jesse Nelson, who's a writer-director, she had at that point uh, wrote and directed uh, Corinna, Corinna. She has since um, uh, wrote the book for Waitress, the musical, and she created a TV series called Little Voice about Sarah Bareilles on, um, I guess it was Apple TV. Uh, she and her husband, Brian Gordon, who's this wonderful director, was seated across from us, and I hadn't really met them. And I saw him say something to her. I had no idea what the words were because they were across the table. There was noise. And she, you'll be able to see it, but your listeners won't be able to. Her reaction to whatever he said was, <laughs> so she just scrunched up her face and, you know, like, <laughs> like he was an idiot. And I recognize that face because that's the one I always see when I say certain things to my wife. So on the way out of the restaurant, I introduced myself to Jesse. <clears throat> I said, listen, you really don't know me. But how do you feel about writing a movie where you spill your guts out and all the secrets about your marriage to be seen in front of millions of people? So we took her marriage and my marriage and blended them. And then when Rob Reiner said he was going to direct it, then his marriage came in. So it became an amalgam. Yeah. That, when I saw the movie for the first time and I, I told you that monologue that Michelle Pfeiffer does about wanting to go to Chow Funds. And I remember watching that thinking, 
that's that's where it all is right there the fact that you know this this length and depth of a relationship it has its ups and downs but you know you know what you're getting you know that little face somebody makes or i just love that scene so much yeah anyway well you know th that that speech by and large was written by Jesse and I, and maybe Rob too. I was out of town. Bunny Bunny was in rehearsal to come to New York. So I had to leave LA. We were living out there. I had to leave there for a couple of days. So I remember coming back and them handing me that speech, asking me to add to it and, 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 and you know, to edit it. But I must give credit that, um, you know, the whole thing about civilizations built on different civilizations and, uh, uh, you know, and reading Winnie the Pooh and, 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 and all of that. I think that was Jessie. That's where, and, it's, and to this day, she's a, a good pal because, uh, um, you know, there's certain people that you connect on certain levels with, you know. Mm, yeah, it's really, a, it was a cool movie. So when you started out and you, <laughs> in your book, you talk about how your parents wanted you to be, uh, to go to law school and you wanted, and you tried all that and it's very funny. I don't want to give away the joke. So everyone must read Laugh Lines. It's so good. Uh, but when you started writing for the Catskill comics, was it that thing where you thought, yes, I know I'm funny they'll figure it out or was it a holding your breath until you started realizing that people are going to pay you for your jokes and that they were they were landing well that's a wonderful question because being funny in front of your family uh making your friends laugh because they already know who you are um, that's one thing you know and it's like if somebody knows you you don't have to say a joke for them to laugh because it it's it's an expression of your character that they know you by. But to write material for another person to deliver with hopes that strangers will find it funny, that's scary. I, th I, was, I was nervous about that. I, 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 um, I would write jokes. I would send it to them. There was no emails at the time, so I would um, mail them. And uh, I would go with them to any of the Catskill Mountain uh, hotels. And I'd sit in the back of a, a nightclub Friday night, Saturday night for whatever show. And I'd wait for my jokes to be told. And I would sit there and I would be nervous. I'd be nervous about two things. I'd be nervous that did the audience laugh. But just as much, I'm going... Don't fuck it up. Just say it the way I wrote it. Right? <laughs> Give it its fair shot. You, you know what I mean? Don't mix the words around. Don't give it. A, all right. So there, there was that. And I think every writer, even when, you know, you write for Broadway, you write for the movies, you write for anything, you have a voice in your head and you know how you think a line or a speech or whatever should be delivered. And you just hope that it's done that way and then if it has to be changed at least it had a fair shot you know well you bring up a good point about the voice so you have a voice obviously when you're writing it comes up in your books and in the jokes you tell you write but when you're writing for other people how do you make that how do you keep some of yourself and that thumbprint in there? Or do you let go of that completely, the ego of it all, and jump right in and just say, what is this person? Who are they? 
How well, is they, their voice? The ego of it has to be put aside, okay? Because when you're writing for other people, other characters, okay? Let's say it's a, a play. Um, because I haven't written jokes for a stand-up in since since I got the job at SNL. So that's since 1975. I, I don't do that anymore. But when I write scripts or when I wrote co-wrote um, 700 Sundays for my friend Billy Crystal, it had to be Billy's voice. It would have been illegitimate if it was... Now, we have a similar sense of humor, but his voice... It has to sound authentic. It has to sound like the person you're writing for wrote it. And so there can't be an ego involved. Now, if in fact you believe in something that the person you're writing for doesn't have the same faith, then the next discussion is, okay, maybe you don't like the line. Maybe you don't like that speech. But here was the intent. If you agree with the intent, let's figure out a better way that you're more comfortable saying it. Mm. Because it, it, you can't impose yourself on anybody you're writing for or any character you're writing for because it will be fraudulent. And if an actor doesn't want to say a line and you, you know, you, you can try to convince he or, or her as much as you want, if they don't have conviction, it's not going to land. They're not going to say it. It's got to sound natural. Mm -hmm. I was thinking since I knew I was going to be talking with you, I started thinking about Rodney Dangerfield and his, I get no respect and thinking, God, isn't it interesting to think you change a couple words around? No one respects me. It just doesn't, it doesn't do the same thing. Why? It's interesting. It's fascinating to me. Well, I, I think that he was aided and I wrote for him back then. And he was easy to write for because he was a character on stage. He had a persona. He wasn't like those other Catskill comedians who were just joke tellers, okay, who just delivered jokes. And, um, and it was those people, yeah, they might have scored heavy with an audience while they were still on stage and taken their bow. Trust me, on the way home, <laughs> in the car, the, the couples would forget who that guy was. There was nothing... Um, uh, there was nothing that stuck, okay? Rodney looked the part. <laughs> now, he was just a stand-up, and he had that look. He had those big eyes. He had that twitch thing where he put his hand, you know, near his, uh, his tie. And, and his, you're absolutely right. If he said, nobody respects me, it, it, it wouldn't have mattered. But... There was something about the character that I don't get no respect. Yeah, that's the way that guy would talk. And if you go on YouTube and just, it's so refreshing in this day and age in comedy to see somebody go on television and inside of eight minutes tell a hundred jokes, just one right after another. And it's, um, uh, you know, look, I love storytelling. I love Woody Allen telling a really long story and peppering it with, with jokes in it. 
You know, there are certain, John Mulaney does that. There's a guy named Mike Berbigley, they're storytellers and that they supplement the, the story with these great jokes. Um, Rodney, <laughs> it was just like a machine gun, joke after joke after joke, but it was that guy telling it and you bought into the character, you know, and um, he took you for a ride. You know, there were a couple of people like that. Um, Stephen Wright used to tell a thousand <laughs> jokes. No, you know, he didn't have Rodney's energy. So there was like something. The best delivery. His delivery <laughs> of stuff was so great and dry and wonderful. No, he would say, you know, uh, it's a small world, but I wouldn't want to have to paint it. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. And coming from, and it was so droll and you know this monotone thing i you just buy into it yeah his rock collection over all the beaches in the in the world that <laughs> <laughs> he kisses is so good yeah he's mike berbigula uh berbiglia is fantastic he's got uh my girlfriend's boyfriend i think it is called yeah that's such a good one he's so and funny. he's got a new one called the new show uh which is about having a kid. Um, yes, that's a good one too. Yeah. And he does this brilliant thing. He somewhere in the beginning, and I haven't seen it in years. Okay. Uh, so I might get some of this wrong, but I remember, cause I saw it in a lot of stages while he was working on it before he brought it to New York. So I saw different incarnations of it, but he would start off as a single guy talking about his relationship with his couch right <laughs> yeah and then he gets married now he's got a kid and he talks about how the relationship with the couch has changed because you know diapers are changed on the it's not his couch anymore you share it and but when he told it at the beginning the couch stuff it was very funny but you didn't think you were going to hear about the couch again and now 20 minutes later he's back at the couch and he's talking about the changed relationship. I just marveled at that. Mulaney does the same thing. Yeah, it's quite lovely. They're, they're epic talents. Uh, you told a story that I heard that was hilarious about getting kicked out of Hebrew school for falling in love with Sarah. <laughs> oh, God, I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, we, <laughs> we learned in Hebrew school... Uh, that um, Abraham was married to Sarah. She was <laughs> childless and, and until she was like 90. And she gave birth to Isaac. And I had this crush on Sarah. I figured that the competition was probably not that keen. You know, she was 90. And um, <laughs> I was caught by... <laughs> uh, back then, this was on Long Island. And you understand, I see it. What, how old must I have been? It was in the early 60s when I was, how do I say this, just discovering myself, if you will. Um, I, uh, <laughs> Rabbi Levitatz caught me uh, playing with myself while <laughs> thinking about Sarah. I love that so much. <laughs> you know what? I think Sarah would be proud. <laughs> It's it's got look in the very least it's a compliment you know if she doesn't like me fine okay have it your way Sarah <laughs> but <laughs> she has to feel good about that 
I mean, God, if I've got young boys, well, anyway, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, when you went to meet with Lauren Michaels for the first time, so you wrote on SNL in the first the first five years of its incarnation, this epic cast, legendary cast. Uh, I love that you put on a crazy suit to do it. And I don't want to give too much away about that either, but I want to know. Oh, if you mean for my interview? Yeah. For the interview. And I've got to wonder, did you have, uh, I mean, I know that you knew the people that were going to be involved, but was there an inkling of what massive thing was about to transpire? No, no, there couldn't. I, I, it, look, if anybody from back then told you that they had a feeling that they would be, uh, in the middle of their 46th season now, I would say, no, 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 that didn't happen. They tell you that they're lying. All I knew was the reason that I didn't want to write for those Catskill guys anymore is because it was like writing for my mom and dad's generation, okay? We were their children. We were the baby boomers, okay? And so I didn't want to write wife jokes. I didn't want to write, you know, um, uh, those kind of you know, paving the driveway or, or, or whatever that was, you know, Woodstock had happened a few years earlier. Nixon resigned. There was Watergate. There was, you know, the pill. There, there was a whole new social structure. And that's where I wanted, that was what I was a part of. And I wanted to write for there. So when I got the opportunity to uh, audition for Lauren for this new show, which would be um, targeted for that generation, my generation, okay? I went, yeah, this is what I want to do. Um, I didn't know Gilda. I didn't know Belushi. I had heard their names around town, but mostly when I heard that they had been hired. Oh, yeah, but who's this guy, Belushi, who's just hired? John, I had not seen before. The, they had there was the National Lampoon had a show um, that Gilda was in. I want to say uh, Harold Ramis, Bill Murray. Look at the I mean, these people, and that I went to go see. I didn't meet any of them, but I knew that this was the new humor, in the so to speak, at that time. And um, when I got there, you know, well. Before when I got the job, it was the greatest day of my life. You know, I um, my dad manufactured jewelry in, in in New York, and his place was on Fifty Second between Madison and Fifth Avenue. And wherever, and I would del make deliveries for him. You know, when you know after school or whatever, and wherever the uh, package had to go, no matter where. I made sure I went by way of Rockefeller Center. It was then called the RCA building. It's now the Comcast building, 30 Rock. You know, um, Johnny Carson had the Tonight Show uh, from that from that building. And in the mid-60s, there was a show called That Was the Week That Was. There were people upstairs doing what I wanted to do someday. And when I got the job and I reported to that same building, the first day as a TV comedy writer, it was, um, to me, it was miraculous. It was um, the greatest day in the world. But I had no idea. I knew it was different. 
I knew it would be different. Back in the 70s, if you watched variety television shows, well, there was Sonny and Cher and Rich Little had a show and Flip Wilson had a show, Jim Neighbors had a show, you know, Carol Burnett. I would hear audience laughing and I couldn't figure out why. That's not, to me, that wasn't funny. Why would anybody laugh at that? And when I met this group of actors, Lorraine Newman and Gilda and Belushi and Aykroyd, they made me laugh. And that was um, what I bargained for. That's, that's what I wanted to do, put words in the mouths of people who made other people laugh, saying the same kind of things that I would say, feeling the same way that I do. So um, that was, um, I, yeah. There must have been an excitement too, to once you were in there and starting to write, to realize the fearlessness the the willingness to do anything for the jo you know for the joke or the moment or the feeling or the zeitgeist what was that that to write to that I, because now you look at things and people are so afraid of being canceled so they're not saying things they're still if you take SNL for an example I think Kay McKinnon is certainly fearless Will Ferrell fearless you know uh, Eddie Murphy was fearless there were there's like so many of them along the way but that group just balls out. Well, you look at it this way too, Susan. Look at the landscape back then. There was no cable. There wasn't even Fox. There was three networks, ABC, CBS, NBC. That was television. And you had this group of actors and you had this group of writers. You look at the original writing staff. Michael O'Donoghue had founded the National Lampoon and Beats wrote for the National Lampoon, okay? Um, Tom Schiller did uh, documentaries. When we had our first, um, uh, Franken and Davis were uh, this uh, really left of center offbeat uh, comedy team. And um, it, when we had our first meeting, Lorne described the show as a comedy variety show, but he went one step further, meaning he elaborated saying, it's a variety of different forms of comedy, okay? <laughs> so it didn't have a single voice. It had the voices of the writers. It had the voices of the actors. The show, the amalgam, yeah, it fell under the same roof. That's a Saturday Night Live kind of thing, okay? So there would be the outrageous stuff. You know, all the Franco is still dead jokes and, uh, and, and whatever else we did uh, uh, back then. But then Marilyn Miller, who was one of the writers, she would write some really soft pieces that Lorne would put on at 10 to 1 in the morning, but they, they pulled heartstrings. They were softer. So it was a different sensibilities. And um, it... it, it it was exciting. It, it, and look, the fact that it was live and the fact that it was so bold, it was a high wire act. You know what I mean? If, if, you, um, if you failed, you felt like a schmuck, but Monday you can start redeeming yourself because you had another show coming that Saturday. And if, you, if something you wrote really scored, uh, you felt great about it, but you couldn't strut too much because Monday you had to start a new thing. Did you not sleep for five years? <laughs> I did not sleep for five years. Not only did I not sleep, you know, the show is written on Tuesday nights, at least when I was there, because the read through is on Wednesday. 
And that's when everybody, the writers, the actors, the producers, the set designers, the wardrobe people, the, you know, the whole, everybody hears the scripts because they have to know what costumes to design and what sets to build and lighting and whatever. So the scripts have to be done by whatever the time is designated on Wednesday for the read through. And it got to, at least when I was there Tuesday, you got there, whatever time you got to the office Tuesday, you knew you weren't going to go home till Wednesday night. Okay. It was like that. And um, it was, um, there was something about the fact that it was such an adrenaline rush that even after I left the show in 1980, <laughs> My body was programmed to stay up all night, Tuesday night, and I had nothing to do. I was home. <laughs> I was married to Robin. You know, I think she was pregnant at this point, but there was no reason. To, but Gilda also, she would call me at like at three in the morning. She's used to up. Yeah, 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 I can't go to sleep. It was like our bodies were <laughs> conditioned. Yeah, Gilda, I'm, I'm in, I, she, to me, personifies so much about uh, comedic genius, especially in the feminine form, because she was she was fearless. Absolutely. I know I used that word before, but to me, she was absolutely fearless. And she wanted to get to pull that laugh out of you so much. It becomes almost an obsession, I think, for some of these actors. I, well, I think you're absolutely right. Belushi was the same way, too. You know, in the case of Gilda, um, look, all of them were, were great. Lorraine, um, I'm nuts about, and um, Aykroyd was a genius on. Oh that. yeah, they're, I mean, they were all perfect. Yeah, they were. But with Gilda, she, what she had was this very rare quality. Not only did she she want to make you laugh, because as a kid, she was um, she lost her dad at an early age. She was overweight, and her comedy was uh, her way of getting acceptance her way of being hugged, you know. Um, but she also had this quality where if anybody ever asked me, which which has been asked a number of times, what her bravest quality was, I, I, I would say that it was that she was brave enough to show her vulnerability. She was brave enough to let you know what made her feel scared, you know, and you got to know her that way. So when she would do Roseanne, Rosanna Dana, yeah, it was really funny. Yet she had the wig, she had the dialect, and whatever we wrote was funny. But there was another level going on. It was Gilda doing it. You felt you knew who the person was. And so that's a um there's an intangible kind of quality that, you know, there are a lot of people who do characters. There are a lot of people who um are real funny, but they're, they're technicians. You don't know who they are. You know what I mean? Even when they impersonate, you can get certain people who can do great impersonations, but um, other people can do impersonations. Yeah, they sound like that person, but you feel you know the person who's doing it. I mean, Dan Aykroyd back in those days would impersonate, let's say, Jimmy Carter, and Danny had a, a mustache. Jimmy Carter didn't. It didn't matter. You know, uh, Danny would uh, do, uh, there was a talk show host named Tom Snyder who did not have a mustache. But 
Billy did it, pardon me, Danny did it so well that there was another thing going on. You know what I mean? And and and, and that's um <clears throat> that goes beyond talent. There's there's a component of the personality that allows itself to be seen. It's mm -hmm. not covered by the comedy. It, it, it expresses it, and you know who's doing it. It's it's a rawness to it. Yeah, they, 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 that's exactly right. There's no slickness. There's no polish. You know, there's no anything that um, you know. Like I said, those other variety shows that were on when I was growing up. The you know the, the women wore Bob Mackie gowns. The men wore tuxedos and they would do, you know what I mean? And, and then mm -hmm. we had Belushi, you know, with his belly hanging out of the bottom of a tie dye t-shirt, you know, it, it was different. It, there was a, um, it, there was an authenticity to it. Yeah. There, uh, I, I got the sense when I read Bunny Bunny and when I read Laugh Lines as well, the, the emotional intelligence of Gilda Radner, that it, it shaped you so much. You, but you allowed for that. You, you were like, um, you know, the, the pebble floating down the river and she was the, the water going by. Yeah, absolutely. I went for a ride. And <laughs> um, we always used to say that uh, I brought out the guy in her and she brought out the girl in me, you know. And, and, and there was something true about it because she was in her fearlessness she would also bang against walls and, you know, and fall down, pop up. And uh, th there was a lot of physicality there. Okay. And um, I would write those things for her. But when we wrote together, I'd also look for the heart, you, you know, so that we filled those each other's voids that particular way. And once again, it was the same thing with, with Shandling, you know, and, you know, I've been real lucky with these collaborations. They're different because they're different people. But whether it's Billy Crisp, La Martin Short, I write a lot now with Dave Barry. It's um, the it's the same. It's yeah, it's different. Just like each couple is different, okay. But the mechanisms are pretty much the same. It's just okay. So you adjust, you adjust this way, you adjust that way, so it meshes somehow. When people like Gilda or John or Gary, these immortals pass away, or Robin Williams for that matter, these people that meant something so deeply to us in our heart, you know, that humor, because the world can be a shit show, let's be honest, and to turn to someone that can make you laugh and, and also has a look in their eye like they're saying, I know you're in pain because I'm in pain, but we're going to get through this together. All those people to me had that quality. So when they, they, they pass away and they're an immortal, how to mourn somebody like that versus mourning a, a regular celebrity. It's a, how do you do that? I mean, you, your whole life has been on that roller coaster between pain and laughter it feels like the things you write and the people you've surrounded yourself with these are wonderful questions susan the um it's um i'm gonna i'm gonna show you something your audience won't be able to see it okay can i get up for two seconds of course i'm gonna i'm gonna show you something absolutely 
Okay, so what I'm going to show you now is a picture that only I have. This was not uh, a publicity photo. It was from, uh, I don't even know if I took it, but I'm the only one who has it, okay? Now, if you can see Gilda's expression. Um, yes. Okay. When I sit here and I work, I look at my, sh my bookshelf over there, and I look at this picture, and to me, this is, it makes me smile, and it makes me think that, all right, we can't take it, things that seriously. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, it, it, but it's like any relationship with any friend, any relative, a grandparent, a pet, any, what, what, what's the takeaway? You know, um, what, what do you, why do we have certain friends? Okay, we have certain friends because they make us feel good. They make us, we, we, we love them. But in addition to loving them is we know how they feel about things and it touches our heart one way or another. I'm looking around the office here as we're speaking. I, I'm, I've been very lucky. You know, one of my best friends is Rob Reiner. Now he hosted the third Saturday Night Live ever. He, and he directed a few movies that uh, I wrote and we did together. And we're working on a TV, developing a TV series together now, 45-ish years later. Um, and the reason I bring it up, or any of these people that I've worked with, we're friends. Hmm. One Michaels used to have an expression where he says, you know, you want to work with someone that you want to have dinner with afterwards, you know. And it's very true, you, you know, it's, it's, and, and what we do, the joke telling, the joke writing um, is very much soul bearing. And when you do that, you expose yourself. And if it's accepted, well, that's friendship and it goes deep, you know? So when that person passes, um, you can't share it with them anymore but you can still keep them alive. What what did you glean from the relationship? What what's lasting about it? Like you just said before, as opposed to other people who you know, people die. We're, we're not built to last. Why is somebody you know? Carl Ryan died a few months ago, and um, Rob had uh, a virtual memorial for him, and. It might have been 600 people. God knows how many. And um, we were in a room that, that was unmuted. So we would be part of uh, um, a little laughter. You know what I mean? Um, so I saw who was in this room. And there were faces I hadn't seen in a while. And it was Norman Lear and okay. and But the people who spoke about Carl. Well, Rob was the MC, and in no special order was Norman Lear, uh, Billy Crystal, Albert Brooks, um, Sarah Silverman. Oh, these are people who had worked with him and loved him, and Mel Brooks was the last speaker. Oh, Steve Martin also spoke. And what everybody was saying, yeah, we all know how funny Carl was. We all know um, what his humor was. 
but it was all about the humanity. That was at its core. And, and, and that's what I'm trying to say with, you know, with these people or what, once again, what, what Shandling did was like, what's it about? You know, so the fact that let's pretend everybody's talented. Okay. Every, everybody's got a talent. All right. Who do you want to spend your time with? Who, who touches you in certain way that you go, I want to know a little bit more, forget out the work because let's say you're going to work with, you know, you choice of people to work with it's um what enriches the soul a little bit what, what's the takeaway and and i think you're right about especially now when people have to laugh a lot of it's cathartic uh a, a lot of it is it's so welcomed i i have my own problems that you just said about cancel culture um which i think is the uh, death of comedy um and hopefully Hopefully, the pendulum will start to swing back towards the middle because, um, you know, the politically correct thing. Um, look, I remember growing up, everybody made fun of everybody else and then you went to lunch together. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're fat, yeah. you're, thin, you're, you're this, you're Jewish, this and that. And now everybody's walking on thin ice. <laughs> Right. That's why I love comics like Silverman or Jesselnick or, you know, who aren't afraid to just say the thing. They just say the thing. They just say it. Say it. Also, that's a comment. That's the whole point of comedy is is to be able to touch the thing that no one will look at. No one will talk about and find that little thing that lets it get into you. Because if, if, if we're all walking around like, no, I don't want to think about, talk about, touch that then we're all at a loss. Humanity is at a loss. I, I agree with you. I, I think society, look, it, it, what, what's so paradoxical about it is it makes things more divisive by saying you can't say certain things. If I was allowed to make fun of you and you make a lot of fun of me and you laugh and I laugh, that makes us closer. We recognize our differences and embrace each other, okay? And it's it's cool. You know what I mean? If if a comic goes to a college and is handed a list of subjects that he's not allowed to talk about or she's not allowed to talk about, you go, well, what the fuck? <laughs> what am I supposed to say? You know, it's um, it's it's a great unifier. It it's not divisive. It's and, and they've made it that way by making. Uh, everybody's walking on eggshells. It's it's terrible. I do feel the pendulum. I, I pray for that, the pendulum to swing back. When you were at SNL, I imagine between, I'm curious how Lauren dealt with, if you wrote a joke, the censors went, no, 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 you can't say that. Did Lauren step in or did he let you all fight your own battles? How did that work? Well, well initially, you know, if you wrote something that the um, censors, uh, objected he would let us fend for ourselves but if we ran into a roadblock and he believed in it he would go to bat for us you know so there were um uh th th there were a lot of incidences where the writers you know would deal with the senses and there was this and once again um there was there had to be a certain amount of cunning in order to get certain things on the air. Um, you know, I talk in the book, um, uh, 
Michael O'Donoghue, the guy who founded the National Lampoon, I was producing the Weekend Update segment of the show at this time. We had this large woman, Jane Crowley, um, who was the censor. And she, you know, big overweight woman, uh, ex-nun, dress shield, you know who I'm talking about. And she would sit in the control room, as would any censor, and they'd go during the dress rehearsal, joke by joke, page by page. This was their last shot they had at censoring you before you went on the air live and it was out there. Michael O'Donoghue had called me one week and he said, listen, what if Weekend Update is brought to you by a um, product that we make up? I said, sure, go for it. So this particular week he had um, Don Pardo, the announcer, say, and now Weekend Update brought to you by Pussy Whip, the dessert topping for cats. Well, it was a huge hit. It was really funny. And I wanted to do one. So for the following week in dress rehearsal, I had Pardo say, and now Weekend Update brought to you by Blue Balls, B-L-E-U, Blue Balls, the cheese snack from France. Well, everybody loved it, except one person, Jane Crowley, the daughter of the control room opens. She comes waddling out. She finds me and she says, Alan, you can't say that when we go on the air. I said, can't say what? She says, you can't say blue balls. And I said, why? <laughs> she said, because it has to do with the male genitalia. And I said, Jane, last week, you let us say pussy whip, which is clearly the female genitalia. Now this, what, what kind of sexist organization are you running here? And she said, give me a minute. She goes into the control room, picks up a phone, calls God, I guess, and um, comes out. She waddles out <laughs> 10 minutes later. And she says, Alan, in all seriousness, okay, um, Alan, I, I, I gave it a lot of thought. And I've come to the conclusion that um, because I gave you pussy whip last week, I'll be more than happy to give you blue balls this week. And I just said, Jane, you know, that's not necessary. Just let us say it on TV. We'll call it even, you know, and, and, and that's the way it worked, you know. Um, uh, and if she still gave it a hard time, you know, Lorne would have stepped in. But, but all of us, Frank and um, when I did, when I wrote Laugh Lions, I, you know, I called all the writers from back then and I Ask them, tell me a story about the censor. If, if they all have different censor stories that are in the book. It's more of a, it's a cultural memoir. What, what, what was the era like yeah, that I was lucky to be a part of, but this was what was going on around me. So the SNL part was very much, uh, was very revolutionary. And, um, but it had to be done in smaller steps you can do more the fifth show than the first and more the 20th than you could the fifth yeah and now from what i understand is they slip jokes in at the last minute too you know that i'm sure bring some ire down after the fact which cracks me up oh, <laughs> under oh, the yeah. wire yeah <laughs> but, yeah i mean and and i think that the writers for any of those shows these days have it harder than we did because there is such there are so many shows yeah. 
that are doing topical humor, for example, okay? Um, whether it be Colbert or um, you know, John Oliver or, or you know, Seth Meyers and Jimmy Fallon and uh, Jimmy Kimmel, by the time sanity comes around, you, you want to do something that isn't reminiscent of something you heard. So I think that to a certain degree, they have to be more clever. And, and I think they are. And I think to a great extent, television has caught up, you know, with so many, after so many years and so many outlets, we can basically see and hear anything. You're not going to out dazzle anybody. Shocking somebody isn't really going to be the thing. You, 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 you've got to have another thing going on. Okay. Because we've seen it all by now. So for them to make us laugh, boy, they must be doing something special. Well, that's what I think it must be like writing for a show like Curb Your Enthusiasm, because life is inherently, it, it, it's that bedfellow of tragedy and comedy, riding this line. But the, the craziest stuff is funny. And I think that that show certainly, like the worst stuff, you can find the humor in. You know, the, the couple of years that I was on that show as a consulting producer, and I was on one of the episodes, okay, it, it was... Um, as an actor, it, Larry has always been that way. Larry has always thought differently than everybody else. And the, the things that he thought that we also thought, but we thought might be too naughty <laughs> to talk about, Larry did. And so, um, He's a, he, we knew even back then that he was he was on a different plane. He was um, uh, and when I when I appeared on that one episode with Larry and we were improving, it was like every phone call I've ever had with him since 1974 when we met. That's who the guy is. And um, he's uh, he makes me smile because he wears his anguish <laughs> <laughs> on his sleeve, you know? He's very, I, I saw him once at Chateau Marmont and he, there is a, there is a thing around him though. He's, he's very charismatic. There's a, there's an enigma thing moving with him. So it's not surprising that he stuck with who he was and didn't give a shit about whether the fact people in the audience didn't get his jokes. Cause if you watch old, it's old stuff. People are like, wait, what? <laughs> well, you know, it's an often told story, but the, the 10 minutes or, or the, you know, the few months that I was a stand-up comedian, because that's how uh, I, I learned it. I, and, you know, ultimately saw me and, 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 and whatever. After I left the Catskills, I took the jokes they wouldn't buy from me and I made it into an, a stand-up back for myself. And, I got on stage at the Improv in a place called Catch a Rising Star. And um, let's say there were 20 minutes intervals between comic number one and comic number two, right? If Larry was on at nine o'clock, and let's say I was on at 9.20, I would still get there at nine o'clock because Larry back then had this Brillo kind of hair, like Larry Fine from the Three Stooges, 
these wire rim glasses. He wore this green army fatigue that said L. David above the breast pocket because like he was it was like a National Guard thing. And he'd get on stage at Friday night at the improvisation, which is a Long Island Jewish crowd. People schlepping in from Huntington or maybe from Jersey, a lot of pastels, a lot of leisure suits, you know, a lot of bouffants, okay? And Larry would get up and he'd look out and he'd say, I feel very comfortable with you tonight. Say this to the audience. <laughs> says, in fact, I feel so comfortable. I'm thinking of using the two form of the verb instead of usted. <laughs> now, I'm sitting in the back, A, I, and laughing because I think it's hilarious. And B, the audience is like this oil painting. They're just <laughs> looking at this. They don't get it. They don't think it's funny. They're just staring. Now, when a comic hits a roadblock, especially right out of the gate, you veer in a different direction. Not Larry. He just kept going. He'd say, I think a lot of people misuse the, the two form of the uh, verb. He says, uh, when Brutus stabs Caesar, Caesar says, A2 Brutus? And Brutus says, Caesar, I just stabbed you. If there was ever a time for usted, it's now, okay? I'm laughing and the audience is just <laughs> tumbleweed going down the aisles. And then Larry would just go, oh, fuck you. And he'd walk off and I'd get on at 901. So the way. And, and what Larry would do on stage in terms of the audience, his frustrations with them, his intolerance for what he felt with this was their stupidity. They're legendary. Anything you read or hear about Larry in the early days, then he would do stuff like that. But okay. what he did was, and this is, aside from loving him like a brother, I mean, he's my buddy. He had the conviction of not wanting to yield. He didn't want to compromise. So when he was didn't have a pot to pee in, and if he would write a script and a producer would look at it, and let's say I'm making this part up, but this is an example if the producer would say, gee, I really want to option this script and offer Larry more money than he ever saw in his life, but here are the changes I would like you to make. I go, Larry, make them. Who cares if it's a red tie or a blue tie? Just make the, make the changes. And Larry stuck to his guns. And there were times where he turned down money um, that he that he never saw before and uh, because he had the conviction of, no, this is the way I see it and this is the way I want it done. And uh, he brought that to Seinfeld. And then when he had the opportunity for Curb, certainly did it there. So what he did was he waited for the rest of the world to catch up to him. Yeah, there you go. That's yeah. the secret right there. And I, I don't want to take all your time. I'm loving this conversation, but I do want to get to before we go, you're, uh, you have a film that you wrote coming out with Billy Crystal and Tiffany Haddish, the, the Here Today. It's called Here Today. Yeah, it, um, I love it. We had a, uh, a virtual uh, screening with the cast and crew last week. And um, uh, it's, um, I wrote it with, I, I had told, uh, I was a guest on a Letterman and I had told a story, a true story there was a, a silent auction for some charity in New York. I can't even remember what it was. 
I don't know if it was for a disease or for a theater or whatever. And I was the prize, you know, I was a prize. Now came the, and the prize was having lunch with me. Now I'm used to friends like Larry David, where they'll pay a hundred thousand dollars to watch him brush his teeth. You know what I mean? Or Tom Hanks, will give him a quarter of a million dollars from, to see him shave. The day came where I had a, the prize. I had to go and meet the winner of the silent auction for lunch. So we live in Jersey, drove in, parked the car, tall, go to the, the restaurant and I meet this young lady and um, I ask her early on, I said, look, I don't want to be indelicate. How much did you pay to have this lunch with me? And she says, 22. And I'm going, Jesus, you know, $2,200. It's not Tom Hanks money, but it's not. She goes, what do you mean $2,200? Literally $22. The bidding started at $20 and went up in 50 cent increments. Well, now I hate her. <laughs> and we're eating and she had ordered a, um, a seafood salad, which was as big as the high school I went to. And there's, you know, there's lobsters and there's, you know, big shrimp and, uh, you know, and she's eating. And I noticed that all of a sudden the lip is starting to droop and the eye is getting bigger, but the other eye isn't getting bigger. She's having a reaction to the shellfish. And I'm wondering at what point does my obligation to the auction winner end? Okay. <laughs> Long story short, my heart went out to her. I went with her to Lenox Hill Hospital here in uh, New York. She didn't have insurance. I bought her an EpiPen. So what cost her $22 ended up costing me about $900. So I told this story on the Letterman show. And Billy said, why don't we make that a beginning scene of a uh, May-December relationship between an older writer and a younger woman. We wrote a script called Here Today, and it's really funny, but it will really touch your heart. Um, Billy plays uh, an older comedy writer who is starting to um, get a little bit of dementia, starting to lose uh, his grip on reality. So it's really funny, but once she the younger woman sees what's going on with him. She becomes his muse. And he's writing a book about his ex, his, his deceased wife, and he wants to complete it before he runs out of his words. And so there's a lot of heart in it. And it took he and I, I would say about a year and a half, maybe two years to write it. And then it came time who would play the younger woman. And after we went through a long list of um, people that were making movies and uh, Billy said, how about Tiffany Haddish? And I had not heard of her, but I had DVR'd that SNL that week when she had hosted and I called them back. I said, that's perfect. So we made this movie and um, it's all done. And it was supposed to be in theaters this past fall, covid killed that billy directed it and he did an amazingly good job and it's um uh it will make you laugh and boy does it really tug at your heart so now we're at a point where okay do you go straight to netflix or 
the, now that there's a vaccine, we hold, do we hold out a little longer and maybe theaters will open up in six months? Because we had the benefit of seeing this movie play before COVID shut everything down in a, in a, in a rough form, okay? Temporary music and you know stuff wasn't dubbed and whatever in a theater. 300 or so people in Pasadena. So we saw a community of people reacting to the movie and laughing and crying at the same time as each other and go, this is the way this movie should be seen. So we were spoiled in a way because we know how it plays to a crowd. So we're going to see when it can come out. If you can hold on, and I know there's powers much greater than I that make those sorts of decisions, but my vote is hold out because I have a feeling that when people can, it's going to be a bacchanalia of, of great ex excess in all directions. Theaters will be packed. Restaurants will be packed. People will be fucking in the streets. It'll be total lunacy. And my God, do I miss going to the movies. And there is something about the communion of sitting in. I know say what you will about people snacking, being loud, or people talking, but the, the cacophony of of this, the breathing and the, and the, the, you know, shocks and the cries and the feeling like you're one being yeah. taking this in. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. It's absolutely right. And everybody's eyes are forward, looking forward on the same images on a screen. And yeah, um, even the distraction of somebody saying, oh, yeah, I want it with mustard, you know, with the, it, it's part of the thing. But it, you're absolutely right. It's so much better than, you know, sitting at home, you know, with this book. I had a whole book tour uh, scheduled. So Lewis Black was to interview me in front of 900 people at the 92nd Street Y. Larry David and I were supposed to be in some theater in conversation in L.A. And when that all went away... Okay, so to promote the book, aside from the talk shows and the podcast and Mark Marin and all of that, which were all great, um, you know, to make up the 900 people who would be at the 92nd Street Y, I got to do four or five virtual Jewish community centers, okay? <laughs> so, okay, so I see them on the screen. And I have them unmute about 15 people. So there's at least some laughter. So I'm not just telling stuff it goes into the ether. But yeah. I'll, I'll see. Oh, this one's got a dog. There <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> was a woman about two, three weeks ago. While I was talking, she was she was knitting. <laughs> okay, So, you know, and it, it's just what we get. But in the same way, there's an intimacy to it. Now it's a little bit more casual. But for a thing like a movie like this, no, it, it has to be seen by a bunch of people. So we're going to, there are powers greater than me. Uh, Fred Bernstein, who's a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, producer. I spoke to him the other day and uh, that's the plan. And, um, I'm hoping, hoping that uh, when theaters do open up, um, that's the way it's going to go. That's great. And everyone read all of Alan. And that's the other thing is you've written so many books. I don't know where you find the time, but my God, gobs of books, which is fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, I will put information about you on heyhumanpodcast.com, links to everything. I want to put the, there's a YouTube video of you on David Letterman doing the, the boxer, the, 
Oh, okay, sure, go for it. From Schumann, yeah, so funny, so very funny, and uh, and just wonderful. I really appreciate your time. I know how busy you are. So it's my pleasure. No, you really fun to talk to Susan, and hopefully we'll meet each other in person someday. I would love that. That would be great. We could share some wine and uh, and make fun of Russ. <laughs> Absolutely, we'll, 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 tear, we'll tear Russ Woody apart. Okay, so. Alan'sWhiteBell.com is, is your website. Yes, Alan'sWhiteBell.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much. Have a lovely day. Thanks uh, for having me. It was my pleasure, Susan. Take care. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.